Our scripture reading is taken from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 58, verses 12 to 14. If you can turn with me, please. Isaiah 58, verses 12 to 14. And they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the reaper of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell in. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then, th- then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to rise, ride sorry, upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. That sends the reading of God's holy word. Good morning and happy Sabbath, everyone. Good morning. Oh, what a day today is. And what a, it's not, I'm going to say this, I've said this every time. It's not easy being up here and doing this, and specifically this time. Um, this is a sermon that I thought about a month, over a month ago, sitting in a car driving home from running around the state. And uh, the reason I thought about it has to do with watching people get pulled over for getting a speeding. So <laughs> this, is, this is what this is based upon in a sense, but it's not. We're going to have prayer and we'll proceed. Dear Father in heaven, we want to say thank you so much for today, for the blessings that you give each one of us. And I ask and pray that you be with everyone here today. Be with me as I share the few thoughts that I have. Help us to think about those in a way, Father God, maybe that we haven't thought of before. We love you, Father God, and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen. As I said, I I thought about this as I was driving home a little over a month ago. There's a part of me that would like to take my notes and toss my notes and try to do this sermon from memory, but there's some parts of it that I will not remember if I do that. So I will not do that. So, I'm going to look at you and, you know, every one of us that's up here and we preach a sermon, we give our sermon a title. And I ask the question, what is in a title? What's in a title? Think that through. To me, a title should do its best to sum up a nut, in a nutshell the essence of what the speaker is attempting to share or convey. So if you take a look in the bulletin at what I have as a title, loving, loathing, or just living the law. What does that make you what does that title make you think about? Think that process through. For me, when I write something, a title says it all. But sometimes you have to think about what those words within a title might mean to be able to go, hey, wait a minute. A lot of times we don't like to think about the meaning of words. We just like to use words. 
And, and we don't always think about what they mean, and we need to. So I'm going to define four words from this title for you before we proceed with the rest of this, because in essence, they actually do kind of say what this is all about. So the first word being loving. This is the dictionary definition, or one of the dictionary definitions. Loving means feeling or showing love, or great care, or enjoying the specific activity or thing. That means you just, this is something that you just, you can't get enough of. You love it with all that you are. Think that through. Loathing. And I almost put loathing at the end of of where living is in my title, but I have the word loathing. The dictionary definition is a feeling of intense dislike or disgust or hatred. That's the word loathing. It's something that none of us, we don't typically use that word today in today's society. We just say hate. We hate this. No, you could say you loathe it as well. It's the same. It means the same thing, but it means even more. And then living. What does living mean? And there was a couple of definitions. And the first one, I can't use that, doesn't even apply to what I'm trying to convey here. The pursuit of a lifestyle of the specified type or simply the act of being alive. Okay? Has a lot to do with our lifestyle. Living, lifestyle, what we think, what we believe. And then the last word, law. We all know what law is, what we think it is, what what it means. The system of rules which a particular country or community recognizes as regulating the activities of its members and which it may enforce, and I stopped it, which it may enforce by the imposition of penalties or a rule defining correct procedure or behavior. So it's a law, and we all have laws in our books. We have all kinds of laws. Like I said, I I thought this thing when I was driving home and watching people get pulled over. You, You speed, you get a ticket. Sometimes. That's part of this. So the thing about it is, is we, our government has given people, whether it be police or the Congress or the military, the right to enforce law. Well, there's a higher being in the universe that has a right to enforce his law too. The dilemma with that is sometimes we think that he doesn't have a right to enforce it and that he doesn't care whether or not what we do with his law. Unfortunately, that's just not the case, period. When we think about laws, they are something that we love, that they are something that we love, loathe, or live. When you think about law, and this is all laws, like it or not, you either love it, you like it, excuse me, you love it, you loathe it, or you live it. And that, and not necessarily in that order. All law, this is all laws. We do this with all laws, especially God's. Here's the thing, you can't just live the law, though. You can't just live it. You either live it and love it, or live it and loathe it. Which camp do you find yourself in? There's only two kinds of people in this world. There's God's people, and there's people that want nothing to do with God. That's the reality. When all is said and done, there's no middle ground. There are people who try to simply live the law, but they don't love it, and they don't love it. And by not loving it, you loathe it. 
And those people sit on the middle, they sit on that white picket fence, trying to have one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth, and it just doesn't work. The Pharisees in Christ's day were like that. They were whitewashed sepulchers because they were living the law, but they didn't love the creator of the law. They disliked him. They loathed him. So, let's understand that each and every one of us are lawbreakers. We're all lawbreakers. There is no way out of that. And I'm not just referring to God's law. We've all broken God's law. But I'm referring to man's laws too. I am. And some people will say, well, I, I've never done that. And I would, I would challenge you to stop and think, maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you've gotten away with something. Maybe you haven't. But a long time ago, on a highway far, far away, I was driving down the road. I was in my early 20s. I was running back. I had left Philadelphia early in the morning. See, I had been in Philadelphia visiting my, my future spouse-to-be. We were just friends, and I had spent a weekend at her apartment, and we had, a, we had a good weekend talking. That's what we spent most of our time doing, cooking food and talking. And I had stayed past Sunday, and Monday morning I had a test in psychology. And for whatever reason, I didn't leave Sunday afternoon. I left a Monday morning, right? It was a three-and-a-half-hour, four-hour drive to the college where I needed to be by 9 o'clock in the morning to take my test. And this is back in the day. Now, we look in the speed limit around most of the United States on the most highways is 70 miles an hour. But the speed limit back in that day, in that long, long ago highway, the speed limit in Pennsylvania had just turned from being 55 to 65 miles an hour. That was it. And it's it just about a couple weeks before not much longer than that. So I'm driving down there realizing that I need to be where I need to be by a certain time. And, I, and, I, and, I, and this was back in the day and age when I would just drive. And, and I had a lead foot. I don't have so much of lead foot now. And that's the beauty of having cruise control. I set the cruise and I just let it drive. And I simply steer the car. But not back then. So I'm driving along. And I made the mistake. I missed my exit. That added 50 miles to my trip because the next exit on the Pennsylvania Turnpike was 25 miles down the road. So I had to go down 25 miles, turn around and come back 25 miles to go to my exit that I needed to, to get on Highway 80 to run down to where I needed to go to school. Drove down the 25 miles, had no dilemma, I, I, and, and I never typically worried about a cop, ever. Wasn't worried about those. I saw them all the time. Always typically knew, oh, you knew where to slide down. There was always that thought in my mind that going five miles over, ten miles over, cop will let you do that. How that is just so not the case. We think it is, and we tell ourselves it is, and we pat ourselves on the back when we do it. But it's actually still breaking the law. It really is. And I got turned around, and I was headed back, and there was this truck this trucker, Jeff, yeah, sometimes you truckers are great. You fly, you're speeding down the road when you should, and sometimes you're just doing a snail's pace. And this guy was going slow. The speed limit was 65 miles an hour. That's at least what I needed to do, and he was barely doing that. So I thought I would pass him in the, in the fast lane like you're supposed to. And unbeknownst to me, when I did that, there was a cop sitting on the side of the road that I passed at the same time that I passed the trucker. He was sitting just on the one side of a bridge. I was only doing about 67, 68 miles an hour as I passed him. Pulled over. 
Next thing you know, a few minutes later, that cop was flagging me down. And here I thought he had wanted the trucker because the trucker was doing something. You know, ultimately, he did give that trucker a ticket. About 10 miles after he pulled me over, he pulled that same trucker over, which I had a good laugh. <laughs> but he pulled me over, and I, and I rolled down my window. I had never gotten a ticket before, and I sat there, and I wasn't sure what to do. I knew that I had my hands on the wheel. I had my license out, and I had my license, my registration out. That much I knew when I was sitting there, and I'm a young man in my 20s, and I'm a little petrified because I'd never had a cop walk up to my window before. What do I do? I knew that I had broken the law. But here I am thinking somehow in my mind that, hey, man, I I was only doing a couple miles over. What's the big issue? And I I looked at the cop, and a lot of times I've heard so many stories from people who give their stories of how they've somehow talked themselves out of a ticket, some weird story, and and the cop has allowed them to get off, and the people laugh at it thinking it's funny, and in some ways it is. But yet it's sad, too. And the cop looked at me, and I, I've never looked at a cop and, and just tried to talk away out of a ticket. I said, officer, what's the matter? He says, you were speeding. I said, I said officer, I, I was doing like 68. I, I thought the speed limit was 65. I said, I was just doing a few miles over. And I made the mistake of saying, I was under the impression that you guys allowed at least five miles over. <laughs> and, and he looked at me, and he got a grin on his face. And he said to me, he said, the speed limit in Pennsylvania is 65 miles an hour, not a, not, a, not a mile over. We just changed this because people thought they needed to be doing this speed. You don't have right to do this speed. And it floored me. $200 plus later, I paid my fine because it was $200 plus to pay that three mile an hour over the speed limit fine. So I sat there, and I've had many tickets since then. I haven't had a ticket in about five or six years, but, I've had many, but that just made me stop and think. We get this mindset that just because everyone breaks the law doesn't mean that we should, nor does it make it right. There isn't a person alive that has a license that I have never known that has not sped. And I'm sorry, there are some ladies that have looked at me and said, oh, I've, never, I've, never, I've never speeded in my life. I, I doubt that. I think everyone has at some point in their life, even just a couple miles over, and by law, you are breaking the law. You really are. Okay? Just because a cop lets you do five to ten miles over the speed limit doesn't mean it isn't breaking the law. Here's the sad part. This is the part that's so frustrating about getting caught for speeding. This is the part that just rubs me the wrong way. The sad part is that not all cops do everything the same way, the same. One cop will let you get away with five miles, ten miles over, and another cop won't let you get away with anything over. They they are so fickle when it comes to enforcing that law. Okay? I don't always understand why they do that. I don't think any one of us understands why they do that. But they have that right. But I can tell you, I am glad that I serve a God who never changes. The Bible says in Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. This is wonderful news that we serve a God who doesn't base what he, he does on how he feels. I always wonder if that's why cops do some of the stuff that they do when they give you a ticket. If they're having a bad day, are you going to get a hefty fine? If a cop's having a good day, are you going to get just a warning? 
I, I don't know. But humans, we base our things on feelings and emotions. God doesn't do that. He simply upholds the law that he's put in place. And sometimes we think he doesn't, but he does. Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I don't know about you, but Sister Joy read the fourth commandment to you this morning out of Exodus chapter 20, talking about remembering the Sabbath day. That's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. But this is the law that we're talking about, God's Ten Commandment law. Jesus says, if you love me, keep it. Keep it if you love me. Does this mean if we love God, we won't be tempted or stumble and fall? Does it? Oh, no, no, we live in a world of sin. You're going to be tempted, stumble, and fall. Every one of us is. That's just life in this sinful world. The answer, of course, is no. However, there is more to keeping the law than what we would like to think about. The Bible is full of people who kept God's law, both in word and deed. These are people who both lived and loved the law. As I said earlier, there's only two kinds of people. There's people that live and they love God's law. And then there's people that live, but they don't love God's law. And in reality, they loathe it, but they just don't always know it. The Bible also has stories of people who have thought they were keeping God's law, but what they didn't realize was they said they lived it, but in reality they loathed it. The Bible's filled with that, those kinds of people too. And I consider and name you both kinds of people. I'm only going to name a couple of people here for you because I want us to. I'm going to share a couple of stories of people that live the law, but it's, I chose these for a specific reason. So... If you wish to follow along, I'll be in Genesis chapter 39. This is the story of Joseph. This is one of the stories of Joseph. But this is about Joseph and Potiphar's wife. I think we all know that story. But I'm going to read this to you. I'm going to read some of the verses here to you because there's part of this that we need to focus on, but I want us to, to talk about it just briefly. And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, brought him, bought him off the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. You realize the Ishmaelites were actually relatives of Joseph. If you never stopped and thought about that, they were relatives of Joseph. They were descendants of Ishmael. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he had, and he put it, and he put it into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he, that he, that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake." Basically, honoring God and loving God and serving God faithfully, no matter what situation you're in, God's going to bless you. This is what's happening here. And the blessing of the Lord was, was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not all he had save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. Now we're going to have some issue here. See, the devil can't just let something good go. That's not the way he operates. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Come on. 
lie with me. But he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wanteth not what is, what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then? And I love his response to her. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass as as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business and there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. This is what he did. And the rest of that story simply goes that she was like, he left his thing. She screamed and everyone came running. And she told a lie. He tried to rape me. And that's not what he did at all. To give you a little background knowledge about this that's not contained here, because this is something that we need to think through. This is about law. This is about God's law. None of us lived in ancient Egypt. But when you study the culture of ancient Egypt, you begin to realize what Joseph was faced with every day of his life. Please understand and realize Joseph was a slave. Slaves in Egypt, most of them didn't wear clothes. Most of them went around naked because they weren't given garments. Some of them had clothes. Joseph was someone, obviously, that had clothes. And that part of that could have been because of his status within Potiphar's house. But unfortunately, that wasn't the issue that was the biggest concern. Joseph dealt with scantily clad women all the time. Every woman in Egypt, their clothes were see-through. Nothing was hidden from Joseph. Nothing was hidden from any man in that time period in society. Joseph was faced with temptations of the flesh at every turn. And he was a young man. So for us sometimes to think that he wasn't tempted by what he saw... We are mistaken. That's just not the case. He was tempted. Verse 9, I'm going to read verse 9 again. This is Joseph saying to her, Potiphar's wife, There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He's like, yo. This is the, he's seeing all of this around him. And he's saying, how can I do this? I can't. And, 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 and you compare that to our society today. With the touch of a button, a person can access any kind of thing that's, just, that's, that's immoral at the touch of a button. We're faced with things in a similar fashion that Joseph was faced with, but on a slightly different scale than what, than, than slightly different scale than what he was faced with. And I'm, that's, that's something to think about. But I want to share with you a few thoughts from the Spirit of Prophecy about this verse and about a little bit of this story because sometimes we don't think about this. The early impressions made upon his, Joseph's mind, garrisoned his heart into the hour, in, in the hour of fierce temptations and led him to explain, exclaim, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Childhood is the season in which the most abiding impressions may be made. The seeds sown in infancy by the careful, God-fearing mother will become trees of righteousness, which will blossom and bear fruit, and the lessons given by a God-fearing father by a precepts and example will, as in the case of Joseph, yield an abundant harvest by and by. If it wasn't for the way he was raised by his mother and his father at home, Joseph would not have withstood this temptation. He would not. Few temptations are more dangerous or more fatal to young men than the temptation to sensuality, and none, if yielded to, to, will prove so decidedly ruinous to soul and body for time and eternity. The welfare of his entire future is suspended upon the decision of a moment. Joseph, this is the part that floors me. When you read in the scriptures, he said he left his garment. Oh, he didn't just leave his garment. Sister White says he took it off and basically left. Why would he take his garment off? Stop and think this through. Every time she stopped him and asked him, she never touched him. But this time, she grabbed hold of him and held on. The only way for him to get away was to take his garment off and leave it. Think that through. Joseph calmly cast his eyes to heaven for help. Slips off his loose outer garment, leaving it in the hand of his tempter. And while his, eyes is, while his eyes lighted with determined resolve in the place of unholy passion, he exclaims, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He gains the victory. He didn't break the law. He didn't break the law. He didn't break God's law, and he knew that. In other words, when he looks to heaven and he pleads with God, he's thinking about what he's doing. Keeping the law is a thinking man's game. Some people don't like that terminology, but it really is. It's a thinking man's game. See, we get this idea, and I'm not sure from where, from where but I can tell you from whom, that God doesn't care about what we do. He doesn't. This is what we think, and this is what we tell ourselves. But it's not true. We especially think this when it comes to God's Sabbath. Today, we think this about God's holy day. He doesn't care what we do, how we do, what we do on his day, whether or not we keep it, whether or not we should. There was a reason God asked us to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. There was a reason. And then go to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, Think not that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of, the, of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, hey, you're going to break one. Basically, if you break one, you break them all. But then he goes on. He goes on to explain and expound upon a few things. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. But whosoever shall and and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whosoever is angry with his brother 
Without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. If you think it in your mind, in your heart, you've already done it. Then he goes on further. You have heard that it was said... You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart already. You read that, and I can think of Joseph and all that he had to go through and endure every single day of his life while he lived in Egypt. And he didn't think about wanting something that wasn't his. He didn't think he didn't commit adultery, he didn't break the law. In other words, Jesus is telling us, if you, if you think it, you've already done it. There is more to keeping the law than acts. If you just keep the law like the Pharisees of old, who, by the way, were just living the law, they didn't love it. What, what are we? Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers because they actually didn't love him. They only loved what they were doing. Apply all this to the heart, center, and soul of God's Ten Commandment law, which, by the way, is the fourth commandment. The one that deals with the, with the day of worship. The one he asks us to remember. James 2.10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, is guilty of all. In other words, you say you keep the law, but you, but you break one of them, you violate one of them, you've broken all ten of them. But we don't always stop and think about that either. Matthew 5.19 says again, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least. This is what Sister White has to say about that verse. This, was, this is a lot of times what we struggle with. This is the judgment pronounced in the kingdom of heaven. Some have thought that the commandment breaker will be there, but will occupy the lowest place. There are some people that think that the commandment breakers will be in heaven, but they'll just be the lowest people on the totem pole. This, she says, is a mistake. Sinners will never enter the abode of bliss. The commandment breaker and all who unite with him in teaching that it makes no difference whether men break or observe the divine law will by the universe of heaven be called least among the human agencies. For not only have they been disloyal themselves, but they have taught others to break the law of God. She says they won't be there. If you're a commandment breaker, ultimately, you won't be there. Hmm. Then there's a story in Daniel. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and a golden image. We know this story. Most of us grew up hearing this story, loving the fact that, thinking it cool that somehow three guys could be fireproof. We thought this, you know, but this stems from Nebuchadnezzar's dream of an image of different metals. And when Daniel interpreted it for him, which saved the life of all of the, the wise men in, in Babylon... Nebuchadnezzar was, this is awesome, this is great, he acknowledged God, but he got bothered by the fact that, wait a minute, that the golden head, his kingdom that ruled the then known world would somehow go away. He said, no, I don't like that. So I'm going to build myself a big image that looks like that image I dreamed about. 
So a 90 cubic high image of gold he built. And he was the ruler, basically, of the world. And he called all of his leading people together from around the world, called to that plain of Dura. And that, and, that, and that group of people included Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but not just those Jewish men. There were other Jewish people there, too. And they were all told that when they heard the music play, they were to bow down and worship. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood there, and they didn't bow. They refused to bow. Somebody whispered and saw it, and they ran to the king to tell the king, hey, hey, yo, you got three people. They're just not bowing. They were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar told them that he recognized who they were and knew who their friend was. For some oddball reason, Daniel did not happen to be there that day. He gave them another chance. Basically, he said, when you hear the music playing, fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that shall deliver you out of my hands? And you listen to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. See, yo, we don't, we're not going to be careful what we say to you. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not, suffer, that, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set down. You look at the very next verse. Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his vestige was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he commanded the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. This whole story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was simply about worship. That's what it was about. It was about worship. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't just live the law. God's law. They loved God's law. If they had not loved God's law, they would have bowed down like other Jews on that plane. That's the reality. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The thing. Here's some thoughts from the spirit of prophecy on this story that sometimes we don't think about but we should. Because it's talking about a last day image. By many, the Sabbath of the fourth commandment is made void, being treated as a thing of naught, while the spurious Sabbath, the child of the papacy, is exalted, which is Sunday. In the place of God's law are elevated the laws of the man of sin, laws that are to be received and regarded as the wonderful golden image of Nebuchadnezzar's day, was, as Nebuchadnezzar was by the Babylonians. People accepted that Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian image. They thought that was what they should do. People think the same thing about Sunday. It's not right. It's wrong. Forming this great image, Nebuchadnezzar commanded that it should receive universal homage. How could he do that? He was the ruler of the then known world. That's how he could do that. 
When you look at the history of the human race, there are four main world ruling empires, and Babylon was the first ruling world empire. All, both great and small, high and low, rich and poor, were to bow down. Remember how it says that Nebuchadnezzar's image is, was changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Listen to what she has to say, Sister White. When the king saw that, this was, that his will was not received as the will of God, he was full of fury. And the form of his vestige was changed against these men. Satanic attributes made his countenance appear as the countenance of a demon. And with all the force he could command, he ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it wanted, and commanded that the most mighty men to bind the youth and cast him into the furnace. And there's a reason why. He felt that it required more than ordinary power to deal with these noble men. His mind, in, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of his anger at them, in the midst of them refusing all of this, his mind was strongly impressed that something unusual would interpose on their behalf. Something was telling him something was going to happen. And that just made him even more angry. How dare you look at me and tell me that you won't do what I tell you to do? That's not what he wanted to hear. We get this idea, remember, that God doesn't care. But this couldn't be further from the truth. He does care. He never changes. The Sabbath was changed by man, not by God. He asked us to refrain from doing our own pleasure on his holy day. What does that mean? Our own pleasure. I've heard churches fight over this, about what to do or not to do on Sabbath. And it saddens God. And it was heart-wrenching for me to watch, and I've seen it in more than one church. I've seen people think that God never cares. But I can tell you that ultimately they're going to find out that God does care. What is it that God really wants from us? Now here's a story by Morris, from Morris Venden that I think illustrates this better than I could ever illustrate it. And sometimes we get caught up in this and we think that nothing matters. But this story is called Sabbath Visit. It's from his modern-day book of parables. I'm just going to read it to you. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. I was in love with a beautiful girl, and I thought she liked me too. But I had a problem. The only opportunity for us to be together for some special time was once a week. The first time we made arrangements for this special occasion, I told her that I would arrive at her house just as the sun was setting and the sky was all beautiful and purple. I thought that would be romantic. So I came up the front steps at the very moment I had told her that I would come anxious to see her. I knocked on the door. Her little brother came to the door. Where's your sister? I asked. 
Oh, he said, I think she's in the shower. But, can, but you can come in and wait if you want to. So I sat down and waited. After a while, she came through the house headed toward the kitchen. Her hair was all wet and up in curlers. As she went past me, she said a quick hello and then disappeared into the kitchen. This was rather disappointing. She seemed to be doing something out there in the kitchen with an iron and an ironing board, preparing something for the next day, and I heard the oven door open and shut and some pots and pans rattle around. We've all been in this place. I began to wonder if she was very anxious to see me after all. But I continued waiting, and after a while, some of the other members of the family came in. She came out of the kitchen, introduced us, and said, maybe we could sit down and get acquainted. But her little brother said, when are we going to eat? After a bit of discussion, they decided we would eat first. So we went to the table and we sat down. After supper, someone said, now why don't we go into the family room and get acquainted with our guests? Now let's make time and do it. And someone else said, do we have to? Well, I didn't feel too good about that, but we went into the family room anyway and began to talk together. I noticed that several of them were terribly sleepy. Terribly sleepy. Including the young woman whom I was most interested in. In fact, she was nodding and yawning. Little brother finally went to sleep right while we were talking. My weekend with this young woman's family was off to a poor start. I guess you can sympathize with me. She apologized and said, listen, I had an awful lot to do this week, and I am so sorry I wasn't ready for your coming, but things will be better tomorrow. We've made special plans. My heart began to pick up, and I began to feel better. I went to bed with the pictures in my mind of us going into some quiet place where we could really communicate and get to know each other better. The next day, it turned out that she had planned for a group of friends to get together and go out into nature. At first, I looked forward to it, but then I found out that all of her friends were simply bringing their motorcycles. We went out in nature, all right, but you couldn't even talk about the roar of the engines out there in the forest. Finally, noontime came, and we sat down for a picnic lunch. She seemed to be very tired, and as soon as we had finished eating, she and her friends spread their blankets out under the trees and had a siesta. We all know what that's like on a Sabbath afternoon. There was no time to talk then. I found myself walking into the woods all by myself. I loved the woods, but I had planned to be alone, but I, had, but I hadn't planned to be alone like this. I spent most of the afternoon walking in the woods feeling very lonely. Finally, I returned to the group, and they were awake now. As I approached, I could hear them talking. I overheard my friend saying to some of them that she could hardly wait until I left because she had some exciting plans for that evening as soon as I was gone. I left that weekend sad and disappointed because, you know, it's terrible to love someone who really doesn't care that much about you. Think about that and apply it about the Sabbath, because this is about the Sabbath. This is God's day. And people fight and bicker over this day. Sunday is not God's day. Sabbath is. And he wants to spend it with us. 
Jesus says, do you, here's the question, do we really truly love God's law? If we do, we will, we will, we will keep all ten of them. God is the law. The law is God. It's part of who he is. It's his character. He wants our time and our love. He created this day for us to spend with him. With him. Not for us to do whatever we wanted to do. And this is the end of what I have to say. Maybe, maybe not. But maybe I'll say that. As Solomon says, and I, I rephrase this my own way, man's whole duty is to fear, love, or, re, or respect God and keep or obey his commandments. Everything else is simply vanity or pride. That is the conclusion of the whole matter. And that's really the bottom line. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Don't bicker and fight over today. Realize that at some point, man is going to have to answer to God for what they've done on his Sabbath day. Realize that at some point in the history of this world, that the Sabbath day is going to be a test to man, just like the fruit was in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. The question is, whose side will you stand on when all is said and done? Man's whole duty, to fear, love, and respect God. Keep and obey his commandments. Everything else is simply vanity or pride. And that's really the conclusion of the whole matter. Dear Father in heaven, we want to say thank you so much for today, for the blessings that you've given us. I ask and pray that you be with each person here this day. Pour out your love upon us, Father God, and help us to to really do what it is and think about what it is that you'd have us do today on your Sabbath day and how we spend our time. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.